Well, this morning we have a uh, guest uh, preacher with us today. His name is Brian Davis. I met Brian uh, briefly when he was an intern at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and um, then later uh, found out that the dude that I met was God's servant. That's, that's a rapper. I know God's servant. I didn't know. Um, but uh, Brian, is he does rap with uh, Lamp Mode, and, uh, but really more importantly, he's planting a church in Philadelphia. Uh, he's in the process of that right now. Amen. Uh, Risen Christ Fellowship. Uh, he will be co-planting with his friend Shai Lin. Uh, and they've begun the work, and I believe it will launch in 2015. Brian is married to so- uh, Sonia, and he has two children, I believe. Brian, it's great to have you today. Let's welcome him as he comes. Don't trip, don't trip, don't trip. Thank you, brother. The garden, what's up? All right, y'all going to be quiet. I have no intention to join you in your quietness this morning. Kind of loud, very loud. (laughs) Kind of feel bad for y'all because I have a microphone on top of that. (laughs) This is just a timer. I'm not texting, so just so y'all know. Because we will be here all day. Um, So much to talk about. Join me in prayer, please. A Father in heaven. Look down on favor to your people. Father, use your spirit and prop up the glory of the Lord Jesus this morning. Be with us here at the garden, church, fitting. He who sows and he who waters is nothing. Only you who give increase. Father, we pray you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I was to give you a certified, guaranteed envelope. You know what I'm saying? And in this envelope was the offering of a lifetime. You open up the envelope and you find you get to fill it out. What would you fill it out with? So if you could have the offering of a lifetime, I want you to be honest with yourself. What would it be? Well, this morning, the Lord does us a favor, gives us a certified envelope from heaven itself, stamped by God's seal himself, and has indeed the offering of a lifetime. Let's see what it is. So if you have a Bible, if you could join me in the book of Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 11. We are going to go over a whole bunch of stuff today, so I apologize ahead of time if I speak quickly. 
but there it is. Chapter 11, verse 25. Chapter 11, verse 25. I have two points this morning. They're more so observations than points, so I don't feel obligated to take notes. Just let the Word of God speak life over you. Two points of this. We have a glorious disclosure, a glorious disclosure, and then we have an amazing invitation. Glorious disclosure, an amazing invitation. Let's look at the Word of God. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, and the Lord says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Feel free, as many times, amen that. So let's look at this glorious disclosure on the outset. We'll look at 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus declared. So on the outset, we find this glorious disclosure. Jesus discloses through a prayer, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving at that, that God the Father has, in effect, hidden things from the wise and understanding And he has chosen to reveal them to little children, or literally to infants. Now, we got to do with some strangeness in the text. So, for instance, does it seem a bit weird to you that Jesus would praise God for this? He seems to be thanking God for hiding revelation for some while revealing it to others. And little children at that. Not perplexed, not confused, he seems happy. And I'm assuming that since this is Jesus praying, and we know Jesus is the example for all mankind, that in some way I'm supposed to be praying like this. Anybody who follows Jesus should be praying like this. So why is Jesus praising God that God is hiding things, hiding revelation from people? Well, to better get clarity as to what Jesus could be talking about, we need to back up a little bit, right? If you're ever in a portion of text and you don't know what he's talking about, it's good just to go verses back until you can get clarity on where that discourse began. So it's obvious at the beginning of our verse, it says, at that time, at what time, Jesus? We've dove right into the middle of a dialogue, and he's praising God for the things he was talking about. So first we need to understand what are these things Jesus is thanking God for. What time is Jesus declaring these things so that we can understand why is Jesus praising God for them? So, as best as I could, if you turn your your Bible one page over, if you have an ESV, it's going to be chapter 11, we're going to start verse 2. 
Um, so it might be on the same page for you. It's on a different page for me. But verse 2, this is where I can kind of trace the dialogue beginning. So Jesus has just sent his, his uh, disciples out. They've just come back. Had a successful journey. Or I guess he's commissioning them as we speak. And it says this in verse 2. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So we have John. He's locked up. He's in prison. He hears Jesus got some buzz. Disciples might have kept paying him a visit. Yo, John, you won't believe what Jesus just did. A dude was blind, and he sees now. The arm literally came back. Boats was rocking, and he was just like, yo, and it just calmed down. But what happened to John? Now, if you're familiar with John the Baptist at all, he's most famous for as John the Baptist. Probably no scene more famous than when he himself sees the Lord Jesus. What does he say? Yo, that's him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin. So what happened to John? Why is John now saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Well, John's in jail, right? Jail changes, folks. So he may be thinking about Jesus and his situation. You got to imagine you're John the Baptist. You're the forerunner to Jesus, and you locked up. And Jesus go around flinging healing and miracles and glory everywhere, except to you. Yo, John, you won't believe what he did this time. John, I'm quite sure, is thinking about Isaiah 61. It's a famous passage. In which case, the Messiah is said to come. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. John's meditating on this verse, probably no doubt in prison. Next verse, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Surely Messiah wouldn't leave his hype man hanging like that, right? Well, Jesus responds to him in classic Jesus form. Look at verse 4 with me. And Jesus answered them, just so y'all know, we're going to get back to the verse. We just got to just stay with me. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And then drops the bomb, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, I know you're struggling, John, but you know who I am, John. Don't stumble because you don't see me doing what you want me to do, John. Remember the righteous live by faith. Don't interpret my value through your perceived situation. And as an aside, don't we relate to John here? 
Aren't we tempted like him when we get in a situation we do not like, that we can't fathom God would let happen to us? Don't we start to undo who he is in our mind? Start to take back the Savior of the world? Maybe we need to look for someone else. Isn't it true that we can easily get blinded by our circumstances rather than by faith using God's word to make sense of our sufferings and hardships? If that's you today, you're struggling to believe God is who he said he is because you are upset with where you're at, where he has you, where he has allowed you to be. I want to encourage you to repent of that. It only gets you further from the Lord and believe his word. Hope in God and lean not on your own understanding. Know that Jesus' response to John applies to you. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But Jesus continues. But wait, there's more. So Jesus begins both to decorate John with appreciation and help clarify his situation. Look at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What? What a commendation from Jesus. If you're familiar with Jesus at all, one thing you quickly learn is Jesus is not a flatterer. Jesus doesn't lavish praise on an individual. He does not inflate his statements nor exaggerate. He has no need to. When Jesus makes this statement about John, we're supposed to be amazed he said it about John. We're supposed to feel it's an incredibly high honor. Jesus, the one who astonishes people with his insight, one who teaches with such authority that even the demons cower before him, sicknesses evaporate at his word and the elements obey his every command, This Jesus just said, in a way, there's never been anyone alive doper than John the Baptist. The Son of God just said, nobody born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. Now, the reason we're supposed to feel this is a tremendously high honor is because of the crazy saying Jesus says next. What does he say right after that? Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. People didn't get it. John didn't get it. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than you can think. It's greater than you can imagine. And what the gospel of Jesus brings far surpasses the expectation of the prophets or any righteous men before them. Jesus lets the crowds know there is a greater honor on those who receive the gospel than on anyone who ever said it would happen. After all, this is what Peter says in verse uh, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 10 through 12, 1 Peter. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach 
the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Later in Matthew 13, when asked why he speaks in parables, Jesus bestows honor on those who understand him. Matthew 13, 16 through 17, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and do not see it, and to hear what you hear and do not hear it. So Jesus wants the crowds and us all listening in through the ages that those who accept the gospel and thus enter into the kingdom of heaven are the most privileged people ever. There's no higher honor afforded to men than to be snatched from the darkness and brought into the marvelous light. There is no greater privilege than to be transferred from the domain of darkness and placed in the kingdom of the beloved Son, to be loosed from the pangs of death and destruction and crowned with eternal life. And that's what the good news is, namely that sinners can be restored to their God. And yet, not all accept the gospel, do they? You would think an offer like that, who would refuse it? Fortunately not. So as Jesus turns, John's in jail. He just sent his disciples away. He said, tell John to cheer up. Jesus knew John was going to lose his head. Tell him, don't be offended by me. Something I'm doing, and he, he says, he goes to the crowd and says, now don't get it twisted. I'm not dissing John either. But not all took his words with the force they were intended. So after Jesus turns from describing the glory of the redeemed community, he turns to denounce the wickedness of the unrepentant. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Here Jesus reminds us of a sobering and chilling reality that as great as John was and as amazing as Jesus is, some will still refuse to repent. Rather than be attentive to John's warnings and pleas or logically following all the signs that the miracles were pointing to, the teaching and the, the amazing deeds that they were addressing, men would rather suppress the truth of God for a lie. Jesus says, not only will the end be destruction, but it will be worse for them who heard a message of rescue and rejected it, who were told of the Savior of the world and ignored him, who were compelled to look to the cross and be saved, but instead chose to look away. It will be worse for them 
than for those who hadn't had the privilege of the call to salvation. Make no mistakes, everyone who will be damned on the day of judgment will be so because, as he says in verse 20, they refused to repent. Sin levels us all. Why did Jesus land there? What is Jesus talking about? There are none greater than others and none worse. A better sinner is no better than a worse sinner. We are all born sinners, enemies of God, hostile to him, children of wrath. And this, I believe, is the groundwork Jesus is setting up. He is saying, don't you see, I'm bringing a kingdom. I'm not just keeping the old thing going. I'm bringing something new. He brings a new measurement system. What do you do with Jesus and his gospel? Though John is the greatest man alive, Jesus says the most insignificant person who enters through the gospel is greater than him. And on the flip side, be it a Pharisee or some ruler and teacher of the law, whoever thinks they got it going on with God but rejects Jesus and his gospel, they have the worst seat in judgment. And it's really here, lodged between Christ's clarification concerning John, that God has a new plan, and his denouncement of the rejecters, the intolerable intolerable judgment that's to be theirs, that we find this ridiculous invitation. Insomuch as the people who receive the gospel are permitted a greater blessing than those of the old order, so those who reject the gospel are doomed to a greater judgment. And rather than make Jesus feel salty, he burst forth in praise. Let's look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have not hidden, excuse me, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, this is what he's not saying. He is not saying that wise and understanding people can't understand the gospel. And he's not saying that infants and little children automatically understand the gospel either. So what is he saying? Well, I think what he's saying is that no one is more privileged by virtue of their own credentials, by virtue of their own strength and abilities to get into the kingdom. Nobody's almost clean enough. Nobody's almost smart enough. Nobody's almost good enough. Whereas it is implied by the little children, I believe on the flip, so it's not him saying the wise and understanding than little kids. No, I think he's, he's, he's contrasting the two. So the, the little kids and infants are the unlearned, ones that don't know nothing. So if the wise and understanding, let's say, is people who have the law, for instance, like John. Jesus is saying, just because you have law, just because you're Jewish, just because you grew up in church, just because your grandmama prayed with you mad times, 
Jesus is saying, that is not what gets you in. Or if you got nothing, somebody might have just come off the block today, never heard of Jesus, never heard of nothing. I don't know nothing about nothing. Jesus says you are an ideal candidate to be informed of the Lord. Ultimately, I think what he's celebrating is that God has hidden the door from the gospel from the hallway of wisdom. So if you're trying to get to God on your smarts, you won't get there. You're going to open the closet to Narnia, and the the closet's going to be closed. So if your mind is a building, most people think, I go in, I go up to the top floor, and then the back of the top floor is where I'm going to get into the kingdom. And God's like, no. In everybody's mind, it's on the bottom floor, right when you walk in. The nursery of the mind, so to speak. It requires humility. A total unlearning of everything you thought was true and a relearning like an infant of everything God says is true. Believing God and whatever he says. I think this is what by the two groups. And you might be like me thinking of Corinthians right now. Should have had a little ribbon right there, right? This is what he says in Corinthians chapter uh, 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God says it's part of the humbling process, the leveling of all sinners. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Who's all up in this room right now? Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And ultimately, this is for the exclusive glory and adoration of God alone, as he continues, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This seems to be what Jesus is exalting in, the amazing purposes of God. How will God get glory from, for himself? Jesus said, your plan is phenomenal. This is what you have done, and it is a good thing. Psalm 8, 118, verse 22 through 23, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes.
Paul caught the same bug later in Romans. As he's going through thinking on the predestining, selective purposes of God through Israel's history, the fact that God's going to break Israel off to graft the Gentiles in, and so that he's going to provoke them to jealousy so that they come back. What does Paul say? God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And then what? He breaks out in a prayer of praise as well. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's a glorious disclosure indeed. But Jesus continues. Because he turns from addressing God. God, this is your gracious will to have done this. And he goes to address us. So verse 27, we read, Matthew 11, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus, everything has been given to me. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. For your plan. And he looks to us and says, the Lord of heaven and earth gave everything to me. Now this is a setup. Jesus is laying the framework of his authority. He is not different than God's plan. No, he is the very idea of God's plan. And he has authority to say something dramatic. This pattern, all he has is mine. Does this remind anybody of any other passage in Matthew? Might recall the Great Commission. Before Jesus sent out the commission that would be the churches, lasting through all the ages, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. So he's looking at his disciples and he says, before I tell you, go, therefore, I want you to know I have the authority to both say and accomplish what I'm saying. Jesus is letting us know he's about to say something dramatic. The Lord of heaven and earth has given Jesus authority of everything. Jesus says, y'all don't know me. The Father knows me. Y'all don't know him. I know him. And I have unique authority. But he says, I also have unique knowledge. I have all things, and I know God. I know the Father. I'm the only one. Jesus is pulling out his God card. The light's shining on the hologram on it right now. Because Jesus is about to pay for something crazy. I am able both in capability with experience to reveal God to anyone. Jesus says God intended to be known. That's why he had a people for himself, to showcase not just his glory to them, but to the world. They did it wrong. 
That's why God says, y'all profane my name among the nations. So I'm going to do a new thing. I got the new, new coming. And the new, new is not just going to be for you. It's going to come to you first, but it's going to be for everyone. And y'all need to know that y'all are with them. You need the same thing they need. And Jesus is like, this is, this is phenomenal. This is a, the gracious will of God. And he's saying, and I get to say what I'm about to say because of him. No man comes to the Father except the Son. They are one. What you do with Jesus is what you do with God, and what you do with God is what you do with Jesus. If God has decreed a thing, Jesus will fulfill it, and if Jesus has judged something, God will uphold it. They cannot be separated and must be reckoned with. Jesus is God, acts on behalf of God, and he alone can bring sinners to God. What a glorious disclosure. Jesus is like, I'm not just a prophet like John. John, don't get offended by me. I'm not just the Messiah you had in your mind. Something greater, and what I bring is something more dramatic. The all-authoritative, all-knowing God of the universe who alone can reveal God to sinners and restore that relationship. The huge God card he just pulled out, slams it on the table. What does he buy with it? Now imagine yourself there. You got the Pharisees, they're around, Sadducees, they're in the corner. Crowds are there. John is in jail. John's disciples dipped already. Jesus' disciples are there. Jesus just keeps saying these confusing things one after another. Why is John locked up? Don't be offended, John. And y'all don't get it twisted. John's the greatest dude up in here. But whoever comes into my kingdom is going to be greater than John. The, the question that produces is how we get into the kingdom. Jesus says, this is the setup of God. This is the scenario. Israel needs to know that, no, just as in John, there's none greater. There's no nation greater on the earth than Israel, but the greatest in the new community is greater than Israel. Look at verse 28. Jesus praise God, thanked him. He looked to us, fire in his eyes, I imagine. He's asserting, I am authorized by the Father as the only individual who can represent him and can act on his behalf. And from my own prerogative, I can reveal God to people, me alone. And this is what he says. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus bought with all of that? Jesus stands on the mountaintop of history and he says, what am I going to do with all? I'm going to bring as many as come to me to God. Who are these weary? Who are the heavy laden ones? 
Do we see the scope of this invitation? This is not an invitation to Israel only. It's not an invitation to the righteous. This isn't a call to Jews or only to Gentiles. This is a universal call to all. The Lord of heaven and earth says, come to me all. And he says, and I'm going to give you what? I'm going to give you rest. Really? Not law? You're not going to give us law? We remember on the mountain, Moses went up and you came to us, you gave us law. We were terrified of it. You come to bring us rest? Really? But we got to know, do we qualify? Who qualifies for the rest? Who's the, the weary and the heavy laden, those who labor? And what does he mean by rest? Is Jesus just encouraging everyone with jobs to come to him? You know, everyone who had a tough week at work? Anybody who's exhausted in here today? Is this what it's for? I don't think so. Now, there's certainly ways that the Lord gives us strength for our journey. He answers our need for strength from him to be faithful in all the spheres of life he's called us to. But it's clear there's something much more dramatic, much more glorious in view. Remember the context. Jesus is preaching good news about a kingdom. He's speaking of a greater citizenship than John the Baptist or any prophet before. What unique state qualifies someone to take advantage of this invitation? It's not like Jesus was just like, yo, heaven, I'm, I'm the authorized representative. So if you had a bad week, I got you. No. Who are the individuals who qualify to take advantage? You ever seen them signs that be like, we'll buy your junkie car? Right? But you'd be wondering, is my car junkie enough for you to buy? How junkie is junkie? How do you know if you qualify for this invitation? Because he does say all, but he says all who are tired. And what does he mean by that? I think what he means is those who fall short of the glory of God and are weighted by it. The book of Romans, God tells us that our good works are like filthy rags that we all fall short of the glory of God. And I think the idea is that there are people who desire to be right with God, but know they're not good enough. Either their life bears witness to this or others around them do. No matter how hard they try, they are weighted with failing to please God. And how do we know this? Well, a couple chapters earlier, verse 9, Jesus is at a table. With the sinners, it says. He was at Matthew's crib. And the Pharisees saw this, and they said to him, this is in Matthew 9, 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came to call, excuse me, for I came not to call the righteous, but... Sinners. Which just means those weighted, he's talking to the sinners. There's the sick and there's the healthy. 
There's the dead, there's alive. There's the weary, and there's the rested. Jesus says, I want people that know there's a problem, who are weighted by it. I have a pastor once who, he used to always say, you know, people always say that the church is filled with sinners, and he said that's kind of true. The church isn't just filled with sinners. It's only filled with a certain subset of sinners, and those are sinners who are repenting. They're repenting sinners. Sinners who are bothered that they're sinners. Because Jesus just told us of cities filled with sinners who don't care. He doesn't say, oh, rest for you guys. No, he says it's going to be an intolerable judgment for you. The word of God is clear. We by our nature do not love God as God or honor him as God. Jesus just communicated concerning that judgment in verses 20 through 24. The wage of sin is death. The due judgment for rejecting God as God, for rejecting the king as the king of your life, is an intolerable amount. Shall you reject God and be exalted to heaven? He'll say to you what he said to Capernaum. No, you will be brought down to hell. And unfortunately, that warning falls flat on many. It did to those cities that Jesus was going to. I have no doubt that in a crowd this size, it may be falling flat on some of you. And we just clearly, we just hit a, we beg you to reconsider and repent. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you're weighted by your sin, you're burdened with the load of it, then today you qualify. You're of the only group of people that do for this invitation. Every time me and my wife get into a conflict, and I'm, I'm mindful of how whack I am, that I'm a sinner. Paul's words sing over me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So when I'm mindful of that, I'm like, I qualify. I qualify. This is why he came, because I'm like this. We need a savior. We need rest. So when Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, those who are trying to work and be good enough and aren't, those who are weighted and burdened because they're not, I think he's saying, come to me all sinners. Come to me all who know they're sinners and wish not to be. For Jesus came for those people in a way he did not come for the arrogant. He exalts the humble. He opposes the proud. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So this come to me, this come to me all. This is a call from Jesus to sinners and he baits us with the sweetest lures. He says all types of people with all types of weary, all types of burden, all types of sin, come to me and I will give you rest. He's just told us that all things have been given to him. So he has authority to give rest. There's other things you try to get rest in that does not have the authority to give to you. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 29, as if we needed more incentive, he tells us how do we cash in the deal, come to me. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here, he's just explaining the exchange. But it's only the exchange he'll make with the humble and the contrite. It's a very simple arrangement. This is not complicated. You you ever try to do them rebates, and then you'd be nervous when you mail it back because you don't know if you did it right? Again, he reveals it to little children. Simple-minded us. He can make wise. To the one who says, I don't know, but I know I need to know the Lord. I know I can't stand with my sin before him. Jesus says, come, I have rest for you. And this is what it looks like. Take my yoke and learn from me. Now, a yoke was a harness put on animals so they could, they could work. This idea um, and this imagery was used for teachers at the time as well for like a school of thought. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, take my yoke and learn from me. An individual's yoke would be their way of thinking. Their school of thought for the world. Thus, it makes plenty of sense as Jesus says it. There are one in the, excuse me, they are one in the same thing, two sides to the same coin, taking the way of Christ upon you and learning from him concerning it. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We don't just come to a cross and say, oh, we're saved and dipped. No, we come to a cross, take his yoke upon us, and we learn from him. He's saying, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Learn from me. Forsake all that you have and follow me. Take up a cross and follow me. I will give you rest. Rest from carrying the burden and weight of your sin. Lose your life for my sake and you will find it. And he lets us know he is not a harsh taskmaster. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. No, pornography is a harsh taskmaster. Being egotistical and narcissistic is a harsh taskmaster. Being self-righteous is a cruel and deflating Lord. Money is an angry God. It's a dismissive master. Satan is a mean king and he is a demented ruler who steals, who kills and destroys. But not Jesus. No, he's gentle. He's lowly in heart. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, no repay according to our iniquities. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he won't put out. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He knows that we are but dust, and he gives us mercy and grace to help in time of need. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And he invites you. He invites you to drop your sin, flee from the wrath, to come 
and rest. What an amazing invitation. And as if that's not enough, there's more. Let's look at verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus lets us know his way is the easiest and lightest way to live. <laughs> People who, who don't accept the Lord, it's, just, it's very obvious it's not going well for them. And he's saying it can be easier, it can be lighter. Now, this is not Joel Osteen false gospel stuff, as if your life's going to be perfect. That's a damnable lie. Everyone has trials. The Lord has decreed it. Everyone has burdens. Everyone has work and weight. Everyone has sins and must deal with a fallen world. But those under his yoke, can carry that weight with him and not grow weary. Those who are heavy laden are weary from working under the wrong conditions with an improper perspective, and without strength. Jesus says his way of life, his way of labor, life in Christ labor does not weary the soul out. It renews the soul day by day. He has a yoke that enables us to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. A yoke that causes us to count our meetings with a variety of trials is pure joy for our maturity. A yoke that can comfort us in all our sufferings and strengthen us in all our hardships. A yoke that transforms the worst conceivable happenings to those that love him into providential workings for our good. A yoke that turns terminal illness and physical pains into light momentary afflictions producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, a yoke that turns the sting of death itself into destruction, into a doorway, into the glory of the Lord. Friends, trying to manage your own sin is like tying a bag of cement on your back, an anvil around your feet, and then jumping into the center of the ocean and trying to swim to shore. You will fail and you will perish. Jesus invites us. Remove that burden. Hop onto his ark that is headed for Zion. And he will carry you. He will protect you. He will bear the weight of your sin. And just like Jesus was asleep in a rocking ship, you can be asleep in him. Don't you want to be a part of the kingdom? Come on, everybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you for good news. You don't have to fear ISIS. We don't have to fear Ebola. We don't got to fear getting robbed. So don't fear those who can do something to the body. Tell us to fear he who can cast both the body and soul into hell. But likewise, what if you speak that we can be secure? What can man do to us? 
What can ISIS do to us? What can Ebola do to us? What can hardships do to us? But further make us ready to see you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. If I pray for anybody who does not know the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would hear your invitation to them and that they wouldn't harden their heart, but they would come to him. They would leave their belongings. They would cast themselves on the cross of Christ and find life. Pray these things in his name. Amen.